Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. Um, welcome everyone to our first Theology, Medicine, and Culture seminar of the spring semester of 2019. Um, it's a great joy today uh, to welcome each of you. I'm Brett McCarty, uh, postdoctoral fellow at the Divinity School, um, where I have the joy and delight of working closely with Dr. Farr Curlin, who's our speaker today. First, though, is this anybody's? It's been left here since evidently December. Um, uh, so if, if this is yours or you would like to claim it, uh, it's up here. Um, uh, so we um, have a sign-up sheet here. If you've been attending, your name might be on here. If you could let us know, we'd just like to keep a track of uh, who's in the room for us. And then if, you, uh, if your name's not on here, we would love to communicate with you if we aren't doing so. Uh, so please uh, give us your name and email address on the, on the bottom there. Um, uh, so today, it's a joy to have Dr. Farr Curlin leading us. Uh, Dr. Curlin is the Josiah C. Trent Professor of Medical Humanities here at the Trent Center, where he has a joint appointment at the Divinity School as well. Dr. Curlin um, came to Duke uh, several years ago from the University of Chicago, where he helped found the program on medicine and religion. And he's done quite a bit of uh, normative empirical work on the role of religion and religiosity in the practice of physicians. And... Uh, he has a forthcoming book called The Way of Medicine um, that he's co-authored with Chris Tollefson uh, that will come out in the next year or so. Lord willing. Um, it's clearly written, um, uh, has deep insight, and is sure to provoke controversy. Um, uh, so um, I, I definitely recommend to you all the, the chance to read that book when it comes out. Um, and today, Dr. Curlin will be... Uh, Speaking to us about, I'm trying to pull up your title. Um, just uh, do your job. Just do your job. Oh, just do your job. Just do your job. I just have one job, and I can't even do it. Just do your job, technology, bureaucracy, and the eclipse of conscience in contemporary medicine. Um, I'm excited about what Dr. Curlin's going to say, and it's just a joy um, to work with a clear thinker, a generous spirit, and a good friend as Dr. Curlin. So you, please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm uh, I'm pleased to have a chance to to try out with you some arguments that I have advanced with a, a former theology, medicine, and culture fellow named Jacob Blythe, who was here in our first cohort three years ago, uh, and now is at uh, Stanford in medical school. And this piece that we wrote together um, and was recently published was spurred by, uh, in part by, an essay that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine by Ezekiel Emanuel and Ronit Stahl a year and a half ago, in which they, the title of that essay is Physicians Not Conscripts, um, something, something Conscience in Medicine. And they, in that essay they argued that, that as they saw it, there's this new phenomenon of people uh, invoking uh, religious informed conscientious objections to different practices and that they are thereby refusing to fulfill their professional obligations to physicians and they called on the broader profession to stamp out uh, in so many terms these uh, 
refusals to, to do what is standard good medical care. And um, so that's the background for this, and, and we'll, we'll mention that essay further. Um, the essay is a little longer than, than would be fitting for our time together, so I'm going to do my best to cut right to what I think is the, the heart of it and so that we can discuss some of the ideas that we uh, deploy. But we, we, um, we were both um, quite captured by uh, reading for the first time for either of us an old book. Um, in 1973, Peter Berger and colleagues published a book called The Homeless Mind. And it was their um, assessment at that time of what, it, what modernity and what they use the term modernization, what, is it, what are the constitutive features of modernization as a social phenomenon that is, we all live with? And what kinds of effects did it have on our lives together? And uh, in that book, they appraise modernization as the institutional concomitance of technologically induced economic growth. That's their words. Like Weber before them, these sociologists examine modernization as a historical phenomenon, asking in what way is this period or phenomenon distinctive? In order to identify what they call the parameters of choice, they distinguish features of modernization that are more readily that more readily accommodate change from those that are deeply linked with larger, less uh, less changeable structures. And they're particularly interested in understanding the subjective consciousness characteristic of modernization and the primary institutions that create and perpetuate this consciousness. This consciousness, sort of, by that they mean this deeply ingrained way of thinking that comes natural to us who live in uh, the context of modernization. They also describe that as the web of meanings that allow the individual to navigate his way through the ordinary events and encounters of his life with others. The totality of these meanings make up a particular social life world. Others have used terms more recently like imaginary, uh, a social imaginary. Medicine in their framework is one prominent domain within which the subjective consciousness characteristic of modernization is experienced and displayed. And in this essay, we argue that this consciousness is displayed in what we'll call, uh, to abbreviate their argument, the product presumption, which is the assumption that, um, that medicine is best understood, its most accurate or more capacious metaphor is one of... Um, uh, offering a set of healthcare products and services to be to be uh, distributed according to the to to the demands of the market. Berger and colleagues locate the primary carriers of modernization in the institutions of technological production and bureaucracy, and between these two, they believe technological production most influences modern consciousness. Technological production calls for a scientific organization of knowledge and assumes a hierarchy of experts. Its style of work is mechanistic, reproducible, measurable, and dependent upon a sequence of production and a large organization. Its cognitive style is centrally patterned on the notion of what they called componentiality, the presumption that the components of reality are self-contained units which can be brought into relation with other such units. That is, that reality is not conceived as an ongoing flux of juncture and disjuncture of unique 
in entities. Componentiality is required for production processes to be reproducible and for human workers and machinery to partner efficiently. You just think about the a factory. You know, you can't have a factory if you can't replace somebody on the line with someone else and have them function in more or less the same componential way. Um, and this, we think, opens up uh, to a severing of the means of medicine and the ends of medicine, which I'll get to in a moment. The second primary carrier of uh, modernization is bureaucracy, uh, which finds its paradigmatic expression in the modern state, but the distinctive consciousness engendered by bureaucracy transfers widely to other domains of modern life. Whereas technological production always aims at a particular goal, namely the thing you're trying to produce, bureaucracy often aims at nothing at all. Apart from, satisfying, <laughs> apart from satisfying the needs of the, the bureaucracy, this fact often makes bureaucratic processes seem arbitrary when they are overlaid with, on various portions of social life. Uh, bureaucracy's organization of knowledge centers on competence. Each jurisdiction, this is uh, Weber's and colleagues' terms, each jurisdiction and each agency within it is competent only for its assigned sphere of life and is supposed to have expert knowledge appropriate to this sphere. You just think about something like a university, which is structured as a large bureaucracy. If you go to the office of technology, they're expected to, to know that. They're not expected to know something about humanistic norms. Uh, they're not expected, and if you go to the office of diversity, they're supposed to know about diversity, but they're not supposed to know about, you know, other things. Bureaucracy's organization of knowledge uh, engenders a distinctive consciousness in which people expect comprehensiveness and coverage. Everything can be handled by someone in some niche of the bureaucracy. Have you ever had that frustration of trying to call a large bureaucracy and, and you can't find who can handle your question? Right? It, 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 there's a sense of outrage. Like somebody in that organization has got to be able to handle this. Uh, the, expectation, the expectation of coverage disposes bureaucracies toward never-ending expansion. This expectation also generates the concept of referral since a given case must be directed to the agency competent to handle that case, a factor that shapes arguments about conscientious refusals by physicians, as we'll see. And anonymity plays a critical role in bureaucracy, as bureaucratic competences, this is their terms, bureaucratic competences, procedures, rights, and duties are not attached to concrete individuals, but to holders and clients of bureaucratic offices. Roles, exactly. At best, the concrete and particular characteristics of these holders and clients introduce friction into bureaucratic processes. At worst, they corrupt the bureaucracy, as when, when a family relation of an employee receives special treatment, threatening its pretense to orderliness and predictability. So Berger and colleagues coined several terms to capture the ways that the distinctive features of technological production and bureaucracy are exported to other domains of social life. They use the term carryover, to designate any diffusion of structures of consciousness from their original institutional carriers to other contexts. They use the term stoppage to denote, to denote the arresting of such diffusion. And they borrow the term package to describe, quote, an empirically given combination of institutional processes and clusters of consciousness. Deploying these terms, we can now summarize our argument. And that is that the flowering of the market metaphor in medicine 
is a symptom and an amplifier of the carryover of various packages from the institutions of technological production and bureaucracy. The product presumption, that's our term, an expansive package of institutional processes and clusters of consciousness that has been carried over to medicine fits poorly with central intrinsic features of the practice of medicine and fits particularly poorly with respect to the phenomena that give rise to conscientious refusals. As such, we advocate for stoppage between medicine and the institutions of technological production and bureaucracy, stemming the carryovers that engender this project product presumption. <coughs> that presumption threatens the attainment of the excellences that constitute good medical practice, which requires, among other things, refusing to engage in practices that one believes contradict good medicine. So, turn now to Stahl and Emanuel's essay, which I had just uh, described at the outset. In it, they argue that medical organizations should no longer tolerate conscientious refusals by clinicians. Um, and what we are going to now try to show is that their whole argument, it seems, depends on the product presumption being the right presumption. Um, and their, their essay tacitly argues for further carryover from technological production and bureaucracy to the, main, to the domain of medicine. They begin by observing that unlike military conscripts, physicians have taken on their roles voluntarily. They then argue that medical practitioners who refuse patient requests abdicate the professional obligations they have voluntarily taken on, namely the obligation, quote, to provide, perform, and refer patients for interventions according to the standards of the profession. This professional role morality, as they call it, requires practitioners to, quote, subordinate their self-interest and personal beliefs to patients' well-being and professional decision-making, end quote. Recognizing no objective standard for patient well-being, Stahl and Emanuel call for seemingly unchecked allegiance to the standards of the profession, which can be relied on, they argue, because those standards are continuously evaluated and revised through a Rawlsian reflective, reflective equilibrium. It's, they were referring to John Rawls' uh, right uh, work there. Further drawing on these criteria for public discourse, they call for debates to, quote, focus on medical value and suitability, not political or cultural acceptance, end quote. While conceding that in the past professional standards have endorsed eugenics and other such mistakes, as they call them, they nevertheless assert that the profession's self-correcting processes establish, quote, professional obligations for healthcare providers regardless of their personal beliefs, end quote. So, in our view, uh, Stahl and Emanuel conceal a surprising number of problematic assumptions behind the facade of so-called professional role mor morality. Indeed, their claims depend on several features of the consciousness of technological production and bureaucracy, and these features supply a series of warrants undergirding their argument warrants requiring that one already see medicine as dependent on carryover from technological production and bureaucracy. Um, so let's look at these in turn. First, component, componentiality. Uh, uh, this, is, this assumption, as I noted, gives rise to a demand for predictability. As every sequence of events, once broken down into its component parts, is expected to give rise to the same result given the same initial conditions. The componential world is organized by the logic of scientific knowledge, and this knowledge is stewarded by a hierarchy of experts. 
This world fosters and demands, and here we're, this is the argument of Berger and colleagues, fosters and demands mechanisticity, predictability, reproducibility, measurability. You can think of outcomes and quality control in medicine. And when componentiality is carried over into the practice of medicine, physicians and patients themselves become components. Each patient is conceptualized as a, co as a collection of increasingly minute components to be tinkered with. At each level of organization, these components are expected to serve the ends of this mechanisticity, predictability, and so on. As such, each function must be identical to that of its corresponding components. Um, unique entities are inimical, are inimical to the componential mindset as they threaten the, the goods of mechanisticity and so on. You can just imagine you know, if you're trying to run a factory and you have a supplier of a particular component and every time they deliver their supply, the component's different than it was the time before, right? You, you would immediately have to get rid of that because it would mess up your entire system. You'd have to restructure your whole, your whole, your whole thing. And that's true in healthcare uh, today. And that gets carried over, it seems to us, in the way we think about doctors. Stalin and Manuel's embrace of componentiality seems evident in their denigration of what they call the personal and the religious and their elevation of the professional. In their construal, the personal and the religious intrude upon and threaten reproducibility and predictability, while the professional, insofar as it's considered standard, preserves these goods by absorbing the individual clinician into the general professional paradigm, by transforming the concrete human into a medical component. At no point do they entertain the possibility that a diverse community of religiously, morally, and ethically engaged medical practitioners might be preferred to a rank of interchangeable providers. Neither do they consider the possibility that what they shelve under the headings of personal and religious might be essential to the ethical practice of medicine. These possibilities are hidden from view in the comp componential mindset, which entails a strong adherence to the logic of scientific knowledge and the hierarchy of experts, dimensions of medical practice that resist componential description and control tend to fall away. And then, in that, in that way, medical comes to mean merely that which can be described in terms of scientific knowledge and technical competence. So they say, you know, we should be talking about the medical concerns here, not the personal and moral. Then what do you mean by that? Well, you mean that which can be described under the terms of science and technique. Let's skip part of this. And move to the concept of vocation, which stands as an intention, it seems obvious, to me, uh, with componentiality. Vocation, often translated as calling, has roots in the Christian belief that God calls human persons to various and distinct lives of good works. On this understanding, one may be called to be a physician rather than simply deciding to be one. And in accepting the call, one constitutes oneself in the deepest way, not simply as a physician, but also as a person responsive to and responsible for before something higher than mere standards. Although the concept of calling stems from Christianity, today the majority of U.S. physicians from diverse religious affiliations, including those who can consider themselves not religious, use, them use this term to describe their practice of medicine. In their seminal book, Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella and colleagues contrast work done as a calling with work done as a job. Practicing medicine is merely a job, fits the demands of componentiality, but at the cost of reducing health care to, to its instrumental value. 
uh, as yet another series of uh, reproducible processes performed to bring about benefits, whether it's income for the physician or satisfaction for the patients, that are not intrinsically related to medicine. In contrast, practicing medicine as a calling involves working for the fulfillment that comes from the work itself, its internal or intrinsic rewards. It requires physicians to see their practice as a whole, to evaluate the means in relation to the ends, and to see how particular practices of deploying particular means toward particular ends align with the work to which the physician understands herself to be called. In this, particularities and concreteness abound. Um, vocation contradicts componentiality. One must give way to the other. And you can just think about this as, as simple as, um, and this is not at all to denigrate the work of being on the line in a factory, but it is probably rare that someone feels called to, to do a componential process in a factory, right? They may be called to lend their effort to a larger goal, right? as let's say people were in the war effort in, in World War II and everybody gets out and starts working in the fast war industry. But there, if that's the case, they're evaluating the end and the means have meaning in light of the end. Um, and yet it's this consideration of the end that is the very thing that this componential mindset, um, uh, particularly as it cashes out in the arguments of Stalin Emanuel, uh, uh, pushes us to not do. All right. The second dynamic of this modernization uh, and the product presumption is the separability of means and ends. Componentiality entails that there is there, there is no necessary relationship between a particular sequence of componential actions and the ultimate end of these actions. That's uh, from Berger. The skills relevant to a given portion of the production process are in no way necessarily linked, necessarily linked to the moral features of the ends of this process. For example, an ability to weld two parts can be put to use in the construction of either a MRI machine or a missile but the welder need not know which one. Carried over into medical practice, this separability manifests in, a dis manifests in a distinction between the realm of the personal, where means and ends can be more tightly linked to meet the psychological needs of the individual, and the realm of the professional, where the ends are dislocated from the means in order to preserve the anonymity and reproducibility necessitated by the reigning <coughs> systems. Within the realm of the professional, the creed becomes just do your job. And this overriding focus on just doing one's job, like stop considering for what reason, just do your job. Uh, focus on the means. This removes entirely from the scope of the medical practitioner's consideration what the job is good for, right? what the ends are. Stahl and Emanuel depend on and affirm this stance throughout their essay. They do not see the practitioner as a particular moral agent working to discern the ethical way forward in complex and particular circumstances. Rather, they dissolve the clinician into the means to various desired medical ends. The practitioner, now the provider, is simply the anonymous locus of a certain set of competencies, and assuming these competencies can be put to use as means to legal, desired, and professionally tolerated ends, Stahl and Emanuel see no place for the practitioner's judgments about those ends. It seems to us that this construal of medicine makes at least two serious errors. 
first, it neglects to mention several aspects of soldiering. Now, going back to their their uh, contrast of physicians uh, with soldiers, because uh, soldiering was their central analogy uh, for medical practice, um, uh, and these they ignore some aspects that are in, that are inconvenient for their analogy. And second, they uncritically carry over a feature necessary for excellence in science. Uh, in other words, specialization, into medical practice, where that feature fits much more awkwardly. So we'll look at those in turn. So uh, in their portrayal, they claim that if a soldier enters military service voluntarily, she agrees to obey any command of her superiors to just do her job. She agrees, that is, to be wielded as a tool by those in command. Stahl and Emanuel's argument regarding conscientious refusals by clinicians is wholly dependent on this claim. But this portrayal of soldiering neglects a long and storied military tradition of soldiers who refuse to follow unjust commands. That is, commands that contradict the moral commitments which make just war possible. The soldier is trained and obligated, in fact, to distinguish, at least the soldiers in regimes that we would have any measure of respect for, are trained and obligated to distinguish commands that are congruent with their professional commitments from commands that contradict those commitments, obeying the former and conscientiously refusing to obey the latter. That is not to say that the soldier gets to make up what being a soldier requires. So if she cannot follow what being a soldier reasonably requires of her, she must decline to be a soldier. The point is simply that being a soldier is not a matter of following orders, simply. Uh, checking one's, quote, personal, you know, or so-called personal moral judgment at the door. Rather, being a good soldier means both taking on the commitments of soldiering and personally carrying out those commitments, using one's best judgment in all of the particular situations that one encounters. This is a complex task requiring constant improvisation, which must account for the novel particularities of the current context and the history of many competing commitments. It's impossible in principle to predict the appropriate soldierly act that will result from this improvisation, as it is impossible to know how novel particularities will interface with standing obligations. So just think about this for a second. You can imagine a soldier in Iraq, a soldier at Abu Ghraib, Right, who gets the order to get some information out of these prisoners? All right, then they, uh, and maybe even the order to waterboard them uh, or strip their clothes off and leave them cold for you know days on end and so on. One way of construing soldiering is, hey, I just be a soldier as you do your job, you do what you're told, and uh, that's the standard here apparently. So that's what I'm going to do. Another would be to, that. The soldier is committed to following orders, but following just orders. And so that as a threshold, the soldier has to consider where the order given meets the rules of war and the rules of, of, of uh, soldierly conduct. It's not an excuse for that soldier, uh, it turns out, to just say, oh, well, I was doing my job. Um, they have to internalize and exercise, internalize their commitments and then exercise judgments in the carrying out of those commitments. Similarly, we think, with physicians. So, if physicians give up evaluating the ends to which their skills are directed, it's hard to see how they do not thereby give up the pretense of belonging to a profession altogether. 
A professional, by definition, professes to direct her energies and powers toward particular goals or ends. Stahl and Emanuel concede that medical practitioners face the question, quote, should healthcare professionals provide or refuse specific interventions, end quote. They recognize that in at least some cases, for example, eugenics, the answer must be refuse. Their criterion for discerning such cases, however, is accordance with the standards of the profession, which, as the example of eugenics makes clear, uh, eugenics in the United States was very popular and widely practiced in the early 20th century. Um, uh, those standards have often affirmed unethical practices. In their appeal to a Rawlsian reflective equilibrium, they ignore Rawls' own point that reflective equilibrium is not, quote, is not necessarily stable. It is liable to be upset by further examination of the conditions which should be imposed on the contractual situation and that by particular cases which may lead us to revise our judgments. So ongoing revision and, honest, and an honest effort at charitably imagining the positions of others is consistent with, and, and you might say even required by, even Rawls's concept of, of modes of deliberation. Ultimately, Stahl and Emanuel appeal to a putatively stable criterion, the standards of the profession, that turns out either, and this is, I think, quite ironic, either to not to condemn that which they want to condemn, right? they want to condemn these conscientious refusals, but it turns out uh, that long-standing, it's been long-standing uh, fact that the standards of the profession permit and even affirm the legitimacy of conscientious refusals. Right? So they're frustrated that the profession standards allow for conscientious refusals, and they're arguing that you shouldn't allow for conscientious refusals because they violate the standards of the profession. Does that make sense? Seems kind of self-contradictory. Um, or, so it turns out either not these standards turn out either not to condemn that which they want to condemn, or they condemn that which they want to affirm. Repudiating, for example, the physician who conscientiously refused to perform forced sterilizations in an era of widespread eugenics. They want to say that was good that they refused, but the standards of the profession would have, by their argument, repudiated that physician and said, you know, you, you're, uh, you need to do your job. Finding moral stability, reproducibility, is clearly one of the motivating forces behind the product presumption. If one can separate means and ends, then perhaps one can identify means that are always appropriate for professionals. And we suggest this is a, a utopian dream. The advance of medical technology is constantly unveiling new ways to achieve both ethical and unethical ends. Means that are accepted today may be rightfully rejected tomorrow, and those that are justifiable in one case are not justifiable in another. This seems to us a feature of the human condition and not a bug to be patched. Part of a physician's moral education involves encountering clinical cases that force her to question her prior judgments. Conscientious refusals by individual physicians mark some of these cases and alert the profession as a whole to regions of practice that require further deliberation. Conscientious refusals, therefore, invite the profession to reevaluate the appropriateness of a given intervention in such cases. Stahl and Emanuel, by embracing the product presumption and the features it foregrounds, fail to see this critical safeguard role that conscientious refusals play. And the history of medicine is littered with examples of medical means being put to deeply unethical ends. It seems unlikely that that history is over. So we argue that 
fostering space for physicians to practice conscientiously, even when one might disagree with them, preserves an important defense against medicine's unfortunate propensity for inventing and participating in unethical acts. And each of us here could come up with a handful of things that we think today medicine might be engaged in that are, in fact, unethical acts. Medicine's checkered past should decisively rule out any appeals to professional standards as final words. Stalin and Emanuel make a second significant error in their construal of the physician as simply the anonymous locus of a certain set of competencies to be put to use as means to legal, desired, and professionally tolerated ends. This error is best understood in reference to Max Weber's lecture, Science as a Vocation, which suggests that a really definitive and good accomplishment in contemporary science can only be a specialized accomplishment, and that, quote, whoever lacks the capacity to put on blinders, so to speak, may as well stay away from science, end quote. Those are Weber's terms. Stalin and Emanuel uncritically carry this feature of contemporary science over to the practice of medicine, where putting on blinders severs the medical practitioner from excellences that are uniquely open to her. While one may succeed in scientific discovery by just doing one's job, putting on blinders. One cannot succeed in medical practice except by attending to a startling and always unique constellation of ineliminable considerations that matter in particular clinical situations. And that just follows from the uniqueness of every patient and uh, uh, all the features that come into play in any clinical scenario. You can't control those away like you can in a scientific experiment, or at least to, to a great extent in a scientific experiment. Every physician uses science, and many also practice science, but the excellences of, the sci of scientific practice and the excellences of medical practice diverge in many respects. Physicians who possess only the former will be lousy practitioners of the latter. All right, last, I think it's the last, yeah. No. Oh, shoot. I must have run out of paper. Brad, can you make sure the copier has a paper in it? Because I think I have a couple pages that didn't get printed. Um, uh, another dynamic is human engineering of anonymous social relations. So, um, competentiality and separating the means and the ends are carried over primarily from technological production. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, but both are buttressed by the anonymity that's so characteristic of bureaucracy. This is, I think, the most interesting dynamic of uh, the product presumption. So for humans to be treated as components of a reproducible and mechanistic process, they must be treated as anonymous functionaries. Consequently, modernization includes a built-in ambiguity and double consciousness with respect to social relations. Others are to be treated as if they are both concrete individuals and anonymous functionaries. This is Berger's observation. The person performing a given task must be an irreducibly unique person as well as an anonymous component whose function is to complete the given task. Bureaucracy fosters the anonymity required to sustain this double consciousness as, quote, bureaucratic competences, procedures, rights, and duties are not attached to concrete individuals but to holders and clients of bureaucratic offices, end quote. In a bureaucracy, the only relevant features of a particular person's are those that mark them either as holders of a given office or as clients, actual or potential, of such an office. 
So it's not, Berger says, concrete individuals, that, but abstract categories that interact in a bureaucratic process. And that gives rise to the, the language of files and cases um, and to a world constituted by a flurry of papers in motion. So, oh, let me go a little further here. This, this anonymity, um, this kind of taking off the distinctiveness that marks each one of you here in order to put you into some category in an office as like practitioner or provider, it takes on moral weight when associated with proper procedures. Whereas the intrusion of concrete humanity into the process of production threatens its efficiency, the intrusion of concrete humanity into the process of bureaucracy threatens its pretense to fairness and is perceived as corruption. To mitigate the ubiquitous threat of concrete humanity interfering with proper procedure, bureaucracies deploy human engineering of various sorts, and individuals learn to police themselves to avoid reprimand. This self-anonymization, as Berger and colleagues call it, leads to a componential self, a self simultaneously constituted by a unique, irreducibly particular individual and by an anonymous bureaucratic functionary. Stalin and Emanuel demonstrate the carryover of bureaucratic anonymization in their hostility toward the influence of personal, religious, or moral beliefs and in their call for professional associations to resist sanctioning conscientious objection as an acceptable practice. Their suggestion that healthcare professionals must subordinate their self-interest and personal beliefs to patients' well-being and professional decision-making both presumes and affirms the double consciousness that Berger and colleagues describe. In effect, Stalin and Emanuel presume that clinicians should indeed be construed as anonymous functionaries or bureaucrats. Their desire to exact some type of penalty for the transgression of conscientious refusal displays the moralized quality of bureaucratic anonymity which motivates human engineering to remove the particular from the domain of medicine. So there's a sense of that these people are interfering with our pretense to being a just, dependable, comprehensive bureau medical bureaucracy that can meet all their needs. And you've got, to, you've got to retrain those people and give them some consequences so that they learn to efface uh, uh, that's that personal stuff that they're un, unreasonably dragging into our professional orderly sphere. Okay. Um, here's the challenge here in brief. Everybody in medicine pretty much recognizes that what makes patients and physicians dissatisfied with medicine, um, a central part of it is depersonalization and yet if you're going to make people separate their personal from their professional components and treat patients as files and cases and treat themselves as holders of bureaucratic offices you are reinforcing the very depersonalization mm -hmm. uh, that people are so dissatisfied with next dynamic which is related is justice as proper procedure. So within a bureaucracy, it's expected that everyone in the relevant category will receive equal treatment. This expectation kindles anxiety when a case does not fit neatly into a relevant category. This anxiety leads to the constant extension and multiplication of bureaucratic categories and their corollary competencies in order to achieve these aforementioned goods of comprehensiveness and coverage and so on. Someone in the bureaucracy must be able to handle every request. And 
since any individual bureaucrat's competencies are limited to her specific office, referral becomes a critical feature of proper procedure. You carry that over to medical practice, these features of bureaucracy manifest as several types of anxieties. On one level, the very possibility that a patient, read client, may fail to provide a provider, a bureaucrat, willing to provide an intervention that the profession deems to be effective, ethical, and standard, that's Stalin and Manuel's words, becomes unjustifiable. Here one sees in medicine the anxieties provoked by a failure to uphold bureaucracy's pretense to comprehensiveness and coverage. Uh, these anxieties push Stahl and Emmanuel to assume what we take to be a, a pretty extreme position, but they also explicitly underlie the so-called conventional compromise with respect to conscientious refusals, namely that individual physicians are not necessarily obligated to provide just anything that patients request, but they are obligated to at least refer patients to those who will since the profession, again, read bureaucracy, has a responsibility to make every legal intervention available. In, this, in the consciousness formed by the product presumption, failure to refer seems to involve unjust discrimination and infringement on patients' rights. That perception underlies, for example, the move by the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario to require that all physicians take positive action to bring about effective referral for any legal intervention, including euthanasia. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's a rather striking uh, new law that was passed a year and a half ago and is being litigated through their federal courts. Um, okay. Anxieties about the failure of comprehensiveness and coverage are found wherever conscientious refusals are strongly criticized. Julian Sabulescu, for example, appeals to these anxieties in his claim about what it means to be a doctor. Quote, to be a doctor is to be willing and able to offer appropriate medical interventions that are legal, beneficial, desired by the patient, and a part of a just healthcare system, end quote. Once again, while Sabulescu's claim might hold insofar as the product presumption holds, it breaks down if medicine departs at all from that presumption. Then, one might reasonably ask, what defines the category of appropriate medical interventions? How does one know when an intervention is beneficial? What are the benefits medical practitioners properly seek? What are the limits of patient authority? How does a healthcare system remain just while coercing its practitioners into doing what they believe to be unjust? Savalescu's claim about what it means to be a physician suggests that anxieties surrounding failure of comprehensiveness and coverage have precipitated an existential crisis for the medical profession. What the profession requires, some have argued, is for physicians to fulfill their end of a tacit bargain, an implicit social contract, in which society grants a monopoly to the medical profession in exchange for comprehensiveness, coverage, and prompt referral. While, while we agree that physicians must do what they have implicitly or explicitly professed to do, the terms of this implicit social contract are often misquoted, it seems to us. We suggest that a more accurate statement of any implicit social contract would be something like the following. In exchange for a monopoly over the practice of medicine, medical practitioners commit themselves to care for those who are sick in a manner that presends considerations unrelated to what the patient's health requires. 
Note that this implicit contract differs sharply from an agreement to provide interventions uh, or provide health care services uh, so long as the profession deems them to be effective, ethical, and standard. All right, I'll close with this. Finally, we conclude that a more general observation, with a more general, uh, we conclude that at several points in their article, Stahl and Emanuel gesture at the kinds of conscientious refusals that they are loath to tolerate within medicine. And they display thereby an imagination captive to the product presumption. Instead of attending to actual cases that display deep, the deep conflicts and complexities that often lie at the heart of conscientious refusals, Stahl and Emanuel resort to fictional caricatures of refusals that seem the most other, the most alien to the logic of medicine under the product presumption. Citing the Jehovah's Witness surgeon who might refuse to allow blood transfusions during surgery, the Jewish pharmacist who might withhold pills that are made with non-kosher gelatin, and the Mormon nurse who might refuse to treat alcoholics. These are their three... Uh, things they cite. Stalin and Emanuel asked the reader to view these three different practitioners, each a crudely constructed caricature of a religiously motivated practitioner, as true others to the professional practice of medicine. In choosing these idiosyncratic characters to represent the larger category of religiously or otherwise motivated conscientious medical practitioners, Stahl and Emanuel displace actual conscientious refusals with, with caricatures that almost any medical practitioner would oppose. And a reader may reflexively reject these refusals, may see, yeah, that would be terrible, that would be ridiculous. But not because Stahl and Emanuel have shown how the refusals fail to fulfill medical practitioners' professional obligations. Rather, these are easy to reject precisely because most physicians know of no community in which such refusals would have coherence. In more than a decade of studying conscientious refusals within medicine, I have never once encountered a report neither a person nor a report of a Jehovah's Witness surgeon who refuses to allow blood transfusions. Anyone here? No. A Jewish pharmacist who refuses to dispense pills made with non-kosher gelatin. Anyone ever heard of that? No. A Mormon nurse who refuses to treat alcoholics. Seriously? <laughs> and Stahl and Emmanuel fail to cite any such practitioners. In deploying abject caricatures, they prey rhetorically on humans' reflexive response to otherness. This way of arguing, we suggest, is itself a symptom of the product presumption, wherein the particular, the personal, and the religious are threats that must be annihilated for the sake of maintaining efficient technological production and stable, comprehensive bureaucracy. That is, annihilated for the sake of sustaining the intellectualization that trades belief for scientific understanding and sustains the pretense that medicine is only, or at least principally, a science. The form of Stalin and Emanuel's argument fulfills the Vatic words of Weber. That was that was that was uh, Jacob's little turn of phrase. <laughs> Weber said, "The fate of our times is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization, and above all, by the disenchantment of the world. Precisely the ultimate and most sublime values have retreated from public life, either into the transcendental realm of mystic life, we'd call that the private world, the personal world." or into the brotherliness of direct and personal human relations. The imagination that is captive to the product presumption cannot tolerate any particular that threatens the logic of confidentiality, the separability of means and ends, or the hegemony of anonymity. 
The internal logic of this presumption prevents recognition or acknowledgement of the unique goods offered by the particular, the personal, and the religious. Thus, Stahl and Emanuel contend that healthcare professionals who are unwilling to accept their construal of medicine, quote, have two choices, select an area of medicine that will not put them in situations that conflict with their personal morality, or, if there is no such area, leave the profession, end quote. This strikes us as a glaring failure of imagination, a failure to imagine how reasonable people of goodwill can and do disagree about controversial clinical practices. This posture aligns well with the logic of the product presumption, but is deeply incongruous with and intolerant of the prospect of a medical community whose members continuously and critically examine their own practices, asking whether their practices align with what morality requires and whether their practices are consistent with the purposes of medicine. So in the end, I'll just say, uh, we hope our account makes clear that the product presumption solves some problems, but it does so at a steep and grave price. It hides or fails to account for the enchantment of the medical vocation, the goods made possible by a diverse body of ethically engaged and morally perceptive practitioners, the inevitable disagreements between reasonable people on the margins regarding what it means to fulfill one's professional obligations as a medical practitioner, the safeguard against unethical acts that is maintained when practitioners ask whether particular actions are congruent with the ends of medicine, the provisional character of any reflective equilibrium regarding morally contested human practices, the violence of sharply bifurcating the self into the personal and the professional, the importance of proximity and particularity to acts of caring, the irreducibly moral character of referral, the distinction between a commitment to care for the sick and a commitment to provide requested goods and services, and the imaginative empathy and epistemic humility demanded by a sincere attempt to understand those with whom one disagrees. It seems to us that those features are more central and more intrinsic to the practice of medicine than the features that the product presumption and its entailments elevate. So we would call for stoppage, what Berger and colleagues call a stoppage of the carryover of that, uh, of those features. And I'll stoppage there. <laughs> so we have 15 or 20 minutes to, to chat. Sorry for somewhat broken presentation. Thoughts? Yes, sir. A question. I mean, um, medicine does not operate by itself. Yeah. A lot of what you described as the factorization, yeah. making it a factory-like, is really driven by the payment system. Yes. And driven by the government. Um, I mean, I worked in healthcare for 30 years, and I saw it increasingly happen over that time. So how can medicine within that context, because the government is not going to stop pushing for the commoditization of procedures? I mean, I'll use an example. Uh, with, uh, using physical or speech therapy, the, the therapist is required to receive payment to monitor by the minute what it is that they're doing. Yeah. Um, how can, within that context, what can medicine do? Yeah, yeah, it's exceedingly difficult. So Berger says, um, the prospects of any efforts of, at stoppage mm -hmm. um, are inversely proportional to uh, the proximity um, of 
the practice you're trying to the uh, of uh, the proximity of the practice to these primary carriers and technological production and bureaucracy. Right. They've been so deeply embedded in contemporary medicine that it's 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 this is why it's part of why um, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, uh, says that a, a feature of modernization that's endemic is uh, learned helplessness, mm -hmm. because it seems it's so the bureaucracy is so complicated and large, and well structured, and the money is so great, and the technological process so deeply developed that we all feel like there's really nothing we can do to change yeah. it. Corporate hands. Mm -hmm. um, so with that caveat. Um, I think there are little places where people can break out to some extent of those of those forces. Mm -hmm. One which I've mentioned to others before that I find quite intriguing, although still a tiny little part of this three trillion dollar a year industry, is the new growth of what's called direct primary care. Right. Right. That to some extent set, cuts itself loose of all that, all those forces. Stuff, yeah. yeah. Others. Welcome. Yeah. This is like a very amorphous, unformed thought that is, I, I would be interested in talking more about it, but I kind of want to pitch back and see what you You know how, um, just going with the product presumption, that analogy of sort of medicine is like a product, um, one of the things we sort of see today with kind of consumerism, um, people become fed up with products that feel like they're produced in some, you know, faceless and meaningless factory. So what consumerism does is it sort of pivots towards this almost artisanal reinvention of itself. So you can buy, like, artisanal mugs that are still produced in a, you know, consumer factory, but it, it gives the appearance of something that an artisan made, maybe, you know, some... Somehow, in the method of production, someone touches it, so it becomes handmade, something like that. Um, and it's ultimately the same thing at bottom. I guess, do you see something like that going on presently in medicine, or do you see sort of like medicine, sort of uh, a manual install, that kind of um, party, responding to your critique in an institutional manner that would do something similar to that, that would give the appearance of individuality and particularity in physicians, but still um, circumscribe their actual ability to hold Yeah, that's a great question. So there, you know, one response to the, uh, the dominance of technological production bureaucracy uh, and the market driving all of it is um, what Victoria Sweet calls slow medicine, which is kind of like slow food movement, right? Slow down, uh, get your food locally sourced, prepared by hand, by people within people you can see, uh, and therefore um, resist, you know, uh, eating something that's been packaged thousands of miles away and. And, and, and just take that as one step closer to um, a repersonalized form of eating or a repersonalized form of medicine. 
I think we should encourage that wherever it pops up. Now, clearly there are forms of that that are just pretenses uh, that actually make the problem worse because they, they, have the, they have the pretense of being something other than what they are, like, you know, like, um, well, like maybe Whole Foods being owned by Amazon, you know. There's, yeah. Um, Perfect example. But what's that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think part of that, the, the irony uh, and the contradictions that get uh, come in here is what is everybody shares a sense that we, we're losing our personal investment in this work and we're getting burned out and we're getting demoralized. And I, I'm sure that uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, although he hasn't practiced medicine in many years, uh, would, would agree from his interactions with physicians. And so we'd probably call for um, really listening to patients, you know, getting down on their level, investing yourself, resisting too much interference and so on. But then when it comes to something like uh, a practice that would, a practice namely a conscience of refusal that would expose the fact that some people claim that what this person is doing, what he's doing, what others are doing, is not ethical, is not good medicine. There's this reaction to using the industry and the bureaucracy to stamp it out. Um, so I think I think the efforts that all those things should be encouraged, but the but the dangers of just having them subsumed into the overarching machine are almost overwhelming. Which is why I think the that something like direct primary care is intriguing because it, it is it's it's something um, that gets more distance than anything I've seen so far. It also happens with the payment system is it actually takes the science out of medicine as well too because only those things that get paid get done. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right. And so it, Daniel. it those things that may be effective but aren't in the payment system don't happen. Yeah. Um, so I haven't read the manual on paper, but I'm curious to know whether they, like, in, in being sort of against some conscientious refusal, but not all of it, make clear any particular standard by which you should make that call. Yeah. And then depending on your answer, I have a follow-up question about your thoughts. Yeah, so that's a great question, and the and, and the answer is no, except the standards of the profession, as they are responsive to reflective equilibrium, essentially the standards of the profession. So that, like, there's not more than that? No. So, but I'm, like, didn't they bring up examples of times when the standards of the profession were what we would now consider to be. Well, what they didn't say is that those were the standards of the profession then. They said those were bad practices that, you know, yeah. Uh, like some people have. But they, they, you can see that we've progressed. I mean, they don't say this exactly, but it's clear in the logic that we've, the progress has moved us past those times. They're and not past those standards. Like, they're not calling those standards. They, they don't call those standards because then they would, I think, directly confront the their contradiction. Do, what do they call present 
standards? Standards of the profession. For for ethical ethical beneficial and scientific care. Okay, so it's like kind of nebulous. Um, so then, in your and Jacob. Yeah. Um, from y'all's perspective, do you have a set of standards by which we might outline our professional standards? Yes. And if so. I do. I don't know if Jacob does, but I do. <laughs> Well, we we did uh, to some extent in that statement I made about an alternate construal of what of what it is that people reasonably could be understood to profess when they put themselves forward as a physician, and that is I think the way I put it, and this is borrowing from others, borrowing from a whole tradition, but that is you've you've professed to put yourself at the service of people who are sick or whose health is threatened. Um, and to use the reasonable means available to preserve and restore their health. Um, that's what you profess to do, notwithstanding patients' other characteristics. So you don't, you do that whether a person's uh, poor or rich, in theory, I guess where we most consistently probably fail, um, but you do that regardless of whether they're your enemy or your friend whether they are, you know, from a group that you like or don't like, uh, whether they're a criminal or a saint, you take care of the sick. And where in that framework, I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm just trying to clarify, is conscious, conscientious refusal? I think, yeah, so you should refuse any to engage in any practice that, to the best of your considered judgment, um, either contradicts the patient's health or is, has nothing to do with the patient's health. So, for example, I'm just giving you really concrete examples. Like you, they're, they're, they were, they were quite clear that doctors who refuse to refer for abortions should not be tolerated. For example, um, and doctors who refuse to refer for uh, gender transition services should not be tolerated. Now, those seem to me two obvious examples where um, uh, there are substantive arguments that the practice itself is not consistent with your commitment to health. And so those would be the kind of practices that a profession should, um, that, a, that a good physician, if that's her judgment, um, and there are reasons why someone might come to that judgment, should refuse. Brett. Thanks, I just have to step away for a minute, so I apologize if something like this has been asked. But um, uh, just, this is a question just to get some specific clarity about how your argument plays in different ways. So. In different times, you said medical practitioner, clinician, and physician. Yeah. And uh, I wonder how your argument plays out for physicians, PAs, NPs, nurses, therapists, etc. And uh, because some of them seem more bound up, the effects of what you described with Berger at all play out differently among these different groups and the historic power slash authority slash uh, gilded profession structure are different for those different groups. Yeah. And, and then as a kind of maybe analog, your appeal to the soldiers and just for tradition, I mean, officers and enlisted men have different oaths because enlisted men have to pledge to obey the president and officers, and officers just pledge to obey the Constitution. Um, but they both are not supposed to do unlawful things. So there, there's a distinction yeah. there that I'm interested in how that plays out in healthcare. 
Well, I mean, I think the analogy with, say, the nurse is even closer to the soldier insofar as the uh, a part of a nurse's practice is to follow medical orders. Um, and why would a nurse ever commit to do that in a good conscience? Um, it seems to me only under the presumption that he or she uh, can depend on, can count on, the great majority of those orders being just orders. And that he or she is going to have the ability to push back on and resist orders that, to the best of their knowledge, are unjust. Um, so I think it, so when I spoke with those different terms, it, I think the argument works the same for all of them. We all sit in a different, we, we all have to take into account what our authority is, and authority is a form of uh, evidence regarding what one should do, like the fact that your teacher tells you to do something gives you a reason to do it, and you may have a countervailing reason, it may, it may have told you to do something that you shouldn't do, but but authority plays in for nurses and physicians in different ways uh, and other practitioners, but all of them, insofar as their work is to be understood as uh, good and reasonable and ethical work, um, uh, has to, all of them have to be able to act freely in accordance with a, their best understanding of what they've committed themselves to do. And obviously on the margins there'll be, you know, there'll be pushback but if a nurse is construed as your job is just to follow orders, that's a terribly unjust construal of what it means to be a nurse, it seems to me. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. So I was just curious about how um, people who are maybe doing everything, and let's say they're a specialist, and there are other things that fall outside the specialty that the patient has a has a problem with, but, yeah. they, but they say they're they work they got too big of a workload and they don't have time to refer. Um, they're just doing their job within maybe feeling like they're they're living up to the ideals of medicine in their job, but the sickness falls outside the realm of their specialty. Is that just a cop out played into the market? Well, I mean, if it's a cop out, yeah. if it's a cop out, it's a cop out. So I'm trying to imagine how someone would say that sincerely, and I have a hard time thinking of it. As a, so th as a chaplain, I'm, you know, we're, we're thinking of things from a more holistic perspective, and as a patient advocate, and running into specialists who aren't referring to other specialists or outside their department. Yeah. Or a medical social worker who's overloaded and can't do a aftercare plan. Yeah. So that seems it's interesting to me that in, in the Hippocratic Oath. Um, uh, there is the statement that I will I won't cut for stone I will withdraw and, and something else I will withdraw in favor of those who are trained in that art um, which has been interpreted um, over the centuries as as affirming that you should do what you're capable of doing but we all have limited capacities and when you know that a colleague is uh, able to do something that you cannot and the patient needs it you should refer to them but that is all under um, it, it seems to me, properly under a vision of what it is that you all together as practitioners of medicine are trying to seek for the patient. And that means that if, if a patient needs something that for, for their health and I can't do it myself but my colleague can, then I have an obligation to refer them. If a patient wants something 
that I don't think is congruent with their health, mm -hmm. then the fact that my colleague will give it to them is not a reason for me to refer them. Yeah. And, d but Stahl and Emanuel say it absolutely is a reason to refer them. So it's just interesting to think about it from an individual practitioner's perspective versus the collective. Yeah, and so the, that the, what the collective has committed to do, I think, is really important. It's clear that the collective has not explicitly committed to, to do anything because we don't have those kinds of, well, not to do anything, but we haven't made, there's no thing that we all signed that said, I will make available all medical, all resources that, that the law permits and the profession does not forbid. No, that no one ever signed that. So, well, what did we profess? What have we committed? What, what, is, what have we tacitly at least committed to? Um, is the crucial is a crucial question here, and I think you either construe it as we've committed to provide services to people who right. who are able to access them and have insurance for them or whatever else, or we've committed to seek people's health as an objective, genuine human good, and it seems to me the latter is um, more reasonable. But that's the subject of the book that Brett wants you guys to read. Last, Andy, we got a minute and a half, minute and twenty seconds. Uh, we might get to this in class, but can you clarify in the, the brief framework that you, you kind of framed, uh, for like end of life care is kind of promoting health is the end of medicine. Mm -hmm. Where's the, the footnote, I guess, for kind of eternally prolonging someone's life mm -hmm. on a machine or for some kind of enhancement therapy that you could argue is improving their health, but it's not necessarily needed? Or Yeah. Yes, we will talk about that more. And, and if you read the book, you'll, 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 you'll get a lot of it. But in brief, um, uh, it seems to me that keeping someone alive is not the same thing as seeking to preserve or restore their health. And there's always – our pursuit of health is not, is not a pursue health with any available means to any possible extent, notwithstanding any other considerations. I mean that leads to a grotesque medicine. Um, the pursuit of health is always conditioned uh, by other concerns, and um, and and you it would be unreasonable to pursue a vanishingly vanishingly small amount of available health with an enormously expended large expenditure of resources. It seems like, in general, but those are the kinds of important clinical judgments people have to make. In three weeks, we'll convene here again for a seminar with Dr. Joshua Briscoe entitled A Faithful and Wise Compassion When Potions, Pills, and Procedures Fail. Uh, but for now, please join me in thanking Dr. Gerland. Thank you. Thank you.